Our Father, we praise you this morning as Zion's children. As the great hymnist John Newton has written this great psalm, glorifying you through your church. Father, we are your church, and we are delighted to be gathered together to worship you this morning. And so we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Okay, we're still in Proverbs, so open to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. I'm going to read some of the same verses that I read last week, and I, I wanted to speak about verses 19 and 20, and I didn't quite fit that in last week. I, I edited that out a bit, and if you're home and you've had the, and you've had the notes um, sent to you this morning, Karen sent them out before I did some editing on them, so you, you, if you have any false doctrine that you're learning... <laughs> From the unedited version, you um, can take that up with Karen. But uh, yeah, just some little additions uh, that I made. Um, So I'm going to ask you this morning to turn to Proverbs chapter 3, and I'm going to read again verses 13 through 20. And so Solomon writes, Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies, and all things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who retain her. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding. He established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down like dew. Amen. O Father, in Jesus' name, by your wisdom you created the earth. And by wisdom you have gathered your church, Father. And we are a grateful church this morning. Bless us with understanding. And with wisdom. Amen. And so you see, he goes from happiness, which we belabored last week quite a bit. We talked about um, the views of happiness of some of the classical philosophers and some not so classical. Um, I'll, I'll talk about a couple of philosophers this morning as well. Happiness is a subject people are concerned with. And you don't have to be a Christian to be concerned about happiness, but you do have to be a Christian, to receive happiness directly from the hand of God. Because it comes through knowledge of his word. And that's what Solomon is laboring over here in these chapters at the beginning of the Proverbs. And so we read verse 19. I didn't get this far last week, but part of our happiness is based upon the knowledge that God is the creator of all things and still orchestrates all things. And we can rest in that. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens, we read. Now, there are two points here that I, that I hope to make today. This will be a two-point sermon. I know you're supposed to have three, but I'm going to do two this morning. I'm really a, a one-point sermon kind of guy, but I'm going out on a limb here this morning. I'm going to talk about two points. 
Number one, to know that we're a part of a glorious creation contributes to human happiness. You know, I remember once, a long time ago, and I told some of you this story over the years. Anybody remember Phil Donahue? Phil Donahue was the original talk show host. You've got to be old to know Phil Donahue. And he was a liberal, but he wasn't a nut like today's liberals. But anyways, he had these people on, these very strange people. They were called uh, by a very strange cultic name. They were called born-again Christians. And they were just strange people. That's a joke. We're the, the strange people. We're the born-again Christians, right? So he had them on. And they were claiming all this exclusive access into the knowledge of God. And he saw that, and he used these words, very arrogant and judgmental. And he said, how can you um, tell people that if they don't believe what you believe, they'll not go to heaven, but they'll go to hell? And he talked about this. And he talked about how unscientific it is to believe that we were created by God. And he thought that that would give little children nightmares to think that they had to appease this one God and there was only this one path into his presence and into eternal happiness. And he, and he sort of chastised them for that and so did the audience to some degree. And I'm, you used to call into the show, so I'm calling and calling. You never get into these shows, you know. But what I wanted to say to Mr. Donahue and his audience is that may be true. It may unsettle some of the tender consciences of the world to find out that there really is only one path to eternal life, and it's through Christ. But I don't see how it's comforting to tell all the little children and teach them since their earliest years in school that they came from an ape, that came from a lower form of life, that came from a rock, that came from an amoeba, that came from nothing, and when you die, you get to go back and be nothing all over again. I don't see that as an uplifting message either, do you? Not at all. No, creation, understanding that a loving creator molded us in his image, that's an uplifting message. That's not only a message, friends, that's a reality. It is declared throughout Scripture. And so the writer Solomon here declares it here. By wisdom, the Lord founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. And the fact that we know that we're part of a glorious creation contributes not detracts from human happiness. And point number two, friends, to know Christ as creator is essential to our intellectual development. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Atheism is the first sign of insanity. Faith in Christ builds mental acuity. You are smarter because you believe in Christ, not dumber, as has been widely advertised. So the writer's been speaking of wisdom. He speaks of the nature of it. He speaks of the advantages of wisdom. Well, that should be obvious. He speaks of the power of wisdom to redeem and to deliver and to prosper the one who has it. He speaks of the source of wisdom as well. And so now he progresses to speak of the world in which the tenets of wisdom apply. Friends, if God created the world, why wouldn't he create a system of guidelines to give to those people who operate within that world. 
The guiding principles of the wisdom of God are the operating principles of that same world that was created by that same source. Wisdom is God's gift to man. If you have it, friends, praise God. He's the source of it. If you don't, ask Him for it. The book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But he adds an addendum. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. So faith contributes to wisdom. It's access to it, friends, you see. And so now we see that it's access into the secrets of the universe. God, by wisdom, created the universe and gave us access into those secrets. The process of observing the laws that govern creation is called science. That's what it is. It's called science. Science is not the enemy of faith, friends, though it's widely advertised as such. Science at its core is mere observation of things that exist and of principles and laws that govern the natural world. Isn't that what science is? The created order is an orderly creation, and we're part of that very same order, that very same creation. And so the writer reveals that creation is subject to and ordered by certain observable natural laws. And here's the best part. Those laws are secret until God reveals them. But he has revealed them. Now, this is where we lose the modern, quote, scientific community. You notice today we have all these communities? There's the scientific community is one of those communities. And then they, we, we, have, we have communities by, by race. We have communities um, by political standing. You know, there's a, there's a black community. There's a, I mean, there's a, you know, LGBT community. I mean, everybody's got these communities. I, I hope I belong to one. Um, I belong to a community called the church. It's a very old community. Perhaps you've heard of it. But we lose the scientific community when we talk about the secrets that God is revealing through through his created order. Just as the creator has revealed natural law that governs the universe, he's also revealed moral law. Now we've really lost the scientific community. You mean to tell me I'm going to study geology and find moral lessons? That is exactly what I'm telling you, and that's what Solomon's telling you. Both moral law and natural law are essential to a well-formed sense of wisdom. You have to have both to be wise. There was a time when everyone knew this. It should be expected that the creator of the universe would offer guiding principles to the creatures that he fashioned in his own image and likeness. He didn't just create this universe with all these laws and put us out there and blind us to the principles that help us succeed and survive in that universe. And there is, right here in the book of Proverbs, an example of the faith-filled observer of nature, the scientist, if you will, looking for God's purpose in the universe by engaging in scientific observation. And I want to tell you, some of the greatest theologians are some of the greatest scientists of their times. I I give you Jonathan Edwards, right? Um, And so the writer... Proverbs, the searcher, or let's call him the researcher, is leading the reader to see the combined force of natural and moral law. They exist together in the universe. But let's go first to the philosopher, to Henry David Thoreau. 
since some of you thought I gave him a bad rap last week. Remember his view of happiness? He said, and I, and I ridiculed it a bit, it was like a butterfly. And you go to grasp it, it flies away. <laughs> Remember that? Some people really like that, so I apologize for making fun of that. Because I did, um, you know, a couple people told me that it's actually, he actually stated that very well. If you, if you focus your mind on something else, happiness will land upon you, light upon you like a butterfly upon your shoulder. It's too bad he didn't say, focus your mind upon Christ. But alas, he was not a Christian. Um, so here's what... Uh, Thoreau wrote, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. Do you know the story of Henry David Thoreau? He's our own Massachusetts philosopher. He lived in uh, Concord, Mass. He was a disciple of his great mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson, great poet and philosopher himself. He was a Harvard man, and he decided to go into the woods for two years. He ended up being there two years and two months. He built himself a little cabin in the woods. Does everyone know the story on Walden Pond up here in Concord? You can go there today. The kids go there. I know Joe goes there, and they, they, uh, they uh, hike around. It's a, is it a park? Is it a state park now? Yeah, and there's, I think there's even, you know, the pond even has um, swimming. I think there's lifeguard chairs and things there now. There was no one to guard Henry David if he went for a swim in those days. But he went to the woods, and he lived supposedly as a hermit in the woods. And I'm going to leave it at that. But um, he said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die discover that I had not lived. And that's from Walden, his famous treatise on, the, on his time in the woods. So the philosopher knows that the created order has something to teach. Now, this is a, a non-Christian, right? He ended up being a what's called a transcendentalist at the time. It's the, the equivalent of the uni, universalist church today, all right? And, um, and he knew that the wilderness, that the outdoors, that the natural order had something to teach. And not only the hard, cold facts of earth sciences and geology and biology, but of life lessons as well. Now, I've read Walden. In my early days, it was one of my uh, favorite excursions. I would go in there and feel like I had done this with old Henry David Thoreau. But he knew that there was life lessons to be learned from nature. And to not learn these things, to not be curious of them, is in the opinion of this philosopher, a life not lived. That's interesting, because that is pretty much what Solomon's telling us. Socrates is known for uh, a similar saying. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Friends, you've got to have some curiosity about things. Now, I believe that Thoreau's excursion into the woods was a worthy experiment. Solomon urges a similar excursion, excursion rather, and so he wrote, In chapter 6 of the Proverbs, maybe you've heard this section. Go to the ant, not your aunt and uncle, to the ant, to the insect. Go to the ant, you sluggard, he said. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? 
So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. That's the scientist, friends. That's the observer of nature extracting lessons. And not just, not just scientific, but moral lessons. Indeed, the preacher king has hit upon the essential point of science, which is observation. Look at nature, friends. Look closely and see if the cycles of seasons, of seed time and harvest, of hunting and gathering and scavenging have any moral lessons for us. Well, Solomon, it seems, gives us a great moral lesson. The ant teaches us not to be lazy and to lay up for the hard times, for the winter months, to make hay when the sun is shining, someone said one time. And so this is how I picture Solomon in this situation. I picture him lying down, prostrate, on his front, and there's ant hills or an ant colony in front of him, and he's propped up on his hands like this in the dirt, and he's watching these ants and taking notes and gathering lessons. Biological lessons and moral lessons. Because that's what God put in nature for us to know. And even the philosopher, the unbeliever, knew that nature had something to teach us. It was part of the created order. And so there's the king, prostrate on the ground, his elbows in the dirt, his head propped up in his hands, and he's observing what even the insect world has to teach us. Friends, go to the ant and learn something. So there are natural and moral lessons to be discovered, and one is as essential as the other because the Creator has placed them there to be learned if only His creatures will apply themselves to the task. Now, it's difficult to pin down exactly what it means to be made in God's image, but like God, man was made a rational creature. We think. And man can do something. Animals think to some extent. You know, they say a goldfish attention span is like three seconds that's why they don't get bored in the little bowl it's a it's a great new adventure every time they hit one of the curves in the bowl and they see and they're looking through and maybe they maybe they see your end table and then they see your plant and then they see your couch and they do it again because they forgot the end table and the chair of the couch were there so they're all excited to do it again but man's not like that man has a great (laughs) man has a a longer attention span not much by found but but a little longer than the goldfish, all right? We are rational creatures. We not only think, but we can think about thinking. We can think about our thoughts. We can self-realize, right? We can examine ourselves. You know, the goldfish isn't saying, I hope I'm being a holy goldfish. You know, I hope I'm being good to the other fish. I hope I'm loving them as I love myself. It couldn't care less about morality, right? If he's bigger than the other fish, he'd eat them. If he's smaller, he'll be eaten, and that's life for the goldfish. I guess it was a three-point sermon. The third point was about goldfish. So it's difficult to pin down what it means to be made in God's image, but it certainly has to do with reason. Man is a rational creature. Use, who was saying it the other day? Use your noggin. (laughs) Use your noggin, my mother used to say. I don't know what a noggin is. I think it's in the vicinity of the human cephalus. But, um... So by wisdom, we can utilize that gift of reason to discover the laws that govern the created order of which we are an essential part. We're part of the order. Be curious how it works. Be curious what it has to teach. 
And so the writer of Proverbs is declaring that it is God's good pleasure to impart those guiding principles into the creatures that share his image. Not the other creatures, just man. Verse 20, by his knowledge, the depths were broken up and the clouds dropped down like dew. So he completes the couplet. He loves to speak in couplets to phrases that say essentially the same thing, that God is creator. He's placed his principles in the created order. God created the world. He also created the spiritual and natural laws that govern the world. And so it's appropriate at this point in the treatise for God to insert himself as the initial cause of all things. Now, I'm going to give you a crude illustration of this. All right? Let's consider that God is the manufacturer of the vehicle that we've been given to ride out our lives in. All right? The earth is a, is a Chevy. Or a, well, a BMW, if you like. I don't care. But he's the manufacturer of this vehicle, and we're on this vehicle, and we're going for this life ride, right? And the book of Proverbs, and in fact the entire canon of Scripture, has become the operating manual for that vehicle. In other words, somewhere in the earth's glove compartment is, the, is a Bible, and it, and it reveals what the manufacturer put in to the vehicle. And there comes a time in every person's life when he or she has to stop kicking the tires of the vehicle. He has to resign himself that the test drive is over and he must either commit to the operating instructions or continue his ride to his own destruction. No airbags in the earth. Note this, though, as I say this, to continue the illustration. Note that God is concerned with safety, the safety of the passengers in the vehicle. We read this. If you have wisdom, you will walk safely. He's concerned. So there's lesson number one. Wisdom makes us safer. He goes on to say, you'll not be afraid. Your sleep will be better. Sudden terror cannot disturb you. You know, I was working through all these things the other day, and sudden terror came upon me. I'm not going to go into it. It's kind of a personal thing. You can ask me later, and I'll tell you about it. But my first reaction was to be in terror. And I said, wait a minute, sudden terror can't hurt me. God's, the, God's got this under control. And so, I'm 65 years old, I'm a man of faith. I ought to be able to have a little more self-mastery than just fall apart over the first bit of bad news, right? And so I got a hold of things. I had, the, I had the operating manual. He goes on to say, you'll not be afraid. Your sleep will be sweet. Sudden terror cannot disturb you. Confidence will be your ornament. The Lord, verse 26, will be your confidence. Remember I talked about trusting in the Lord, not trusting in ourselves? The Lord is our confidence. So lesson two, wisdom imparts confidence. Right? We're confident. You know why we're confident? I found this out. This is something you need to know. You're more confident when you're more competent. Think about that. Be competent at something. Be a competent student of Christianity and of the scriptures. And then he goes on and speaks of happiness. Point number three for him. We're apprised from this passage that happiness is a consequence of wisdom. And that seems that men like Socrates and Thoreau were onto something. 
Seems they caught on. Now both, I don't know about Socrates, certainly Thoreau read Solomon and Socrates could have. It was around for many hundreds of years at that time. I don't know that it made its way to Greece. But um, we're apprised from this passage that wisdom contributes to happiness. Wisdom is the path to purpose. Not just any purpose, friends, but the Creator's purpose. The purpose the Creator infused into the created order. Some things are clearly revealed, friends. Other things are implied and need to be searched out. But wisdom is the path to further revelation. Further revelation. The Creator has infused His masterwork, which is the creation, with wonderful secrets for those who engage in the search. Anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally and without reproach. So friends, success, safety, prosperity, these things belong to the children of true wisdom. And wisdom is the child of authority. Now what do I mean by this? I think, it's, I think this is the second important point of the passage. It's been asked if a believer, that's one who claims faith in Christ, can be a true believer apart from understanding God as creator. In other words, can you be a true Christian and not believe what Solomon just said about the creator? Can you be? Think about that. Maybe you never thought about that before. I got to tell you, it's been asserted that a person can be truly saved, have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ without assenting to the facts of creation as they're given to us in Scripture. Can we devise or theorize another creation scheme that's alien to the Genesis model and still claim ownership of Christ as Savior? The simple answer, friends, is no. You cannot. You cannot claim Christ and evolution at the same time. They're disparate. You know, I have a rule. You know, I have two rules of Christianity. They're very simple. And I know you know what they are. Because I've told you many, many times. Rule number one, you have to believe what Jesus believes. Jesus believes in the Genesis story. He talked about it. He talked about it in the beginning. He talked about men and women. He talked about marriage. He quoted Genesis more than any other book of Scripture. He believes it, friends. He believes it. I don't think you want to face him and say, you know, I, I really thank you for saving me, but I have some issues about your beliefs. I'd really like to get you up to speed on proper thinking, Lord. I don't think that's a, a good place to be. And so it's been asserted that a person can be truly saved and have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ without assenting to the facts of creation, as they're succinctly stated here in the Proverbs. Can we devise or theorize another option, something that the Lord will say, you know, that has merit. I like that you brought that up. That's not going to happen. The simple and resounding answer is no, you cannot have one without the other. You must have both. Or the Christ you believe in is a false Christ because he is creator. And we'll get to that. But a person who claims the Christ of Scripture must claim also the creator of the world. For they are in fact one and the same thing. They're one and the same being. They're one and the same God. For Christ is God. Christ is God, and God through Christ is creator. You know, God created the world, but he didn't do it without Christ, and Christ didn't do it without wisdom. 
They got together. They colluded and said, let's make this world and man in our image. To claim God apart from his essential power and apart from his first and most consequential act of power is to place your faith in another God, a false God, a God that is not revealed in Scripture, some other God, friends. Now, the Apostle John wanted us to know this, so he opened his, his gospel treatise with this very principle. And that's why he writes this. In the beginning was the Word. We know God created through his Word. He spoke the world into being. Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke it into being. And the Word was with God, he writes, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Friends, if it's made, it was made by the Creator, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. I hope you knew that. I hope you know that now. Jesus is the Creator of the universe. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's the great cardinal doctrine of our faith, the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And I can think of no more emphatic declaration that the Christ of Scripture and the God of creation are one and the same being. Not one and the same person, but one and the same being. And so I can hold no faith as true and saving if that faith relies on stripping the deity of his primary creative function. How can you do that? You remember when people used to say, well, you know, I, I made Christ my Savior, but I didn't make him my Lord yet, but I'm working on that. You broke him in half. Actually, you didn't do anything because you don't make Christ anything. He makes you or he doesn't. But that's what we're doing here. I made Christ my Savior but I took away his creative power. I don't believe in that. Or I don't believe he's deity. You either receive the Christ of Scripture or you receive some other Christ. Right? A small c Christ. And so I can hold no faith is true in saving if that faith relies on stripping the deity of his primary creative function. He's the creator of the universe. He created us in his image. He infused the created order with operating laws and statutes, and he's revealed those statutes to men, praise God. He could have kept them a secret, but he revealed them because that's the kind of God he is. The result of which is that the same wisdom employed in that initial act of creation is employed in every other faithful act. So much so that happiness cannot be achieved apart from the residing wisdom that God is creator. That infuses man with happiness. And if, it, and if you haven't experienced that yet, be more curious about it. Wisdom cannot be wisdom, friends. Truth cannot be truth. Christ could not be tr Christ if the God who inspires the word is not the same God who formed the world and established the heavens as he declared that he did. The whole created order is a grace of God. He didn't have to create us. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't unfulfilled. He was just overflowing with creative impetus. He's a creator. And that's part of the image. We're creators in our own little spheres. We create things. 
We build things. So the whole created order is a grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it, right? It was just God's pleasure to do it. And access into the benefits of creation are contingent upon recognition of this fact. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. That gives you access into the wisdom of God, into unlocking the secrets of the manufacturer that he put in the operating instructions, which is the word of God. Now, I've heard it said many times that a so-called person of faith claims Christ while at the same time holding on to their own brand of wisdom regarding initial causes. I've heard them say, I believe in Christ, but I have issues with regard to the creation story of Genesis. I would say to that person, I believe that you would like to believe in Christ. You obviously see the eternal benefits of faith. You know what's been called, that kind of faith has been called fire insurance. Somehow you do fear that fiery end. And say, I think I'll buy some insurance. I'll get a term policy of faith. But if you have issues with creation, friends, you have issues with Christ. You're in fact arguing against God, and that's not a safe place to be while living in this universe and lapping up his every grace and blessing. And so I say you've broken the first rule of faith, in my opinion. You've, you must believe what Jesus believes. Number two, by the way, is you have to love who Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church. So the majesty of creation is a glimpse into the majesty of God. To love the glimpse and deny the glory amounts to inglorious confusion. Paul wrote it this way, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And who are the they? They are the deniers of God. What the apostle is asserting here is that the majesty of creation is the surest evidence of God as creator. Go out and look at your world. Don't look at it through a little screen all the time. You know, we were, were kids. I remember when <laughs> we, took a road, we, we took road trips. When I was a kid, our parents took us on road trips all the time. We were always like going to New Hampshire or the Cape or something, you know, little trips. And um, I remember we took a road trip one time. Maybe we, we were going to Florida, I think. And Pastor Ken is a great giving guy. He gave Daniel one of the first iterations of um, video games. It was called Game Boy. You remember Game Boy? I always thought it was a silly name. But it was the kind of thing we just wouldn't have bought. And he gave Daniel a Game Boy, and all the way down to Florida, Daniel, I guess you stare at a screen and you play video games. And I said, and he said, well, that'll give him something to do on the way. I said, you know, when we were kids, you know how we entertained ourselves on a road trip? We looked out the window. (laughs) We watched stuff go by. Bridges and rivers and trees and buildings and people and animals. I mean, that's just what you did. You looked at the created order. Some of you remember that. Your mother already said, go to the bathroom before you get in the car on a long trip. And everyone get in the car two minutes later. Can you pull over? But uh, that's how you entertained yourself. You looked at creation. Get that curiosity again, Solomon is saying. The majesty of creation is a glimpse into the majesty of God. And to love the glimpse and deny the glory is great confusion. And so the psalmist wrote this. And this is 
Solomon's father who wrote this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Creation utters speech. A form of revelational knowledge that can be consumed by rational creatures. Rational means thinking. The firmament shows his handiwork. How do you look at the firmament and not think of the creator? Do you really look at all the stars in the heavens and think what a glorious accident the Big Bang must have been? Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. Creation reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, creation has the gift of tongues. It can speak to anybody. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. So to arrive at the place where creation is enjoyed and God is denied is to come to the place of abhorrent and deserved confusion. Professing to be wise, they became fools, Paul said. Friends, God's not the God of confusion. We're told that elsewhere. Here in Proverbs, we're told that God's the God of wisdom and that by that very same attribute, he created the world and then gave us access into its secrets. Now, I can tell you, I've always been a lover of of nature and of nature's beauty. You know, last night, Karen and I were sitting out on the deck behind my house. This time of year, it's a perfect place to be, right? And, the, you know, the yard extends out, and there's the, the vegetable garden, and then there's the woods and the swamps are out there. And it's a sign of old age. We're bird watchers now. We knew we had a family of Orioles. Have you seen the Orioles? They're so orange and bright. They're like a little splash of orange paint that, in a, that flies into a tree, you know, and lands in the green background. But we're just sitting there, and we saw this crow, and he flew so low. It's like, what is this crow doing? And I said to her, I bet he's being chased by some smaller birds for messing around with their nest. Sure enough, here come the Orioles, right? The, the, the male and female, the, 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 the pair of them come, and they chase him. And then another pair come. Now, we've been saying, I wonder if we have, we see a lot of Orioles, but we know there's one pair. I wonder if there's more. Well, there's at least two pairs, all right? Um, I'm not talking poker. I'm talking birds, ornithology. So they're chasing this guy, this big crow, and he went up into the tree, and they're like darting at him. And I, I kind of felt bad for him, but of course, he might have eaten their eggs or, or their young or something. You ever see them when they're chasing? Like even a hawk. The little birds will chase the hawk. And so, the, I mean, there's delight in that, in watching parents protect their young in the wild, you know? And the beauty of it, it's, it's really quite amazing. So I've always been a, a lover of nature, and I can also tell you I'm a fearer of nature and of nature's wrath. I see God's hand in it. When I see the same places hit over and over again by natural disaster, it's fearful. And I've always been a believer that, that the blessing and the fury of God may be expressed in the grandeur and the power of creation. They're tied together. The Creator's tied to His creation. He's not His creation. That's another religion, right? He stands apart and above His creation. And we don't praise His creation, we praise the creator who had the genius to create the creation. 
True happiness is tied to true faith, and true faith is tied to belief in a glorious creator. To go out into the world, to observe its grandeur is a method people have always used to calm their thoughts, give peace to their souls. You ever say, honey, where are you going? I'm going on a walk. Why? I'm going to clear my head. It clears your head. <laughs> of all the little insignificant things, you go out and you look at the grandeur and you think, you know, God is still in charge. I got my problems, but there's a big sphere out here and there's an intellect, an intelligent being governing it. So you go out. So believers and unbelievers alike perform this exercise of making excursions out into the world, out of the man-made cities that they've created, away from the structures that are the glory of man, and into the unspoiled wild places that are the glory of God. And there's something to teach. Thoreau knew it. Socrates knew it. Certainly Solomon knew it. I know it. And I hope you know it. How can we speak of the beauty of a painting? Think of the beauty of a painting. Do you just look at the beauty of the painting and, and think, boy, what a wonderful accident. The paint spilled in all these wonderful ways. Although there is a school of art that actually does do that. But you look at the painting, you think of the beauty of the painting and at the same time, the skill of the painter. You don't separate the two. How can we speak of the beauty of a sunset and not consider the skill of its creator? Think of the vast wisdom that set the solar system in its orbital path. Who thought that up? It's so perfectly workable. Friends, the, the planets are just round rocks, <laughs> right? Some are so hot you'd simmer on their surface if you landed there. People talk about going to Mars. Goodbye. <laughs> Have fun. Um, <laughs> too hot for me, man. <clears throat> Other planets are so cold you'd immediately solidify. You'd probably crack and crumble to the ground. How is it that our atmosphere contains us so well? How is it that the oxygen we breathe is exhaled by the foliage around us and the carbons we exhale becomes their breath? How does that work? What a perfect scenario. How is it that the earth is an orbital rock hurling through space and at the same time a fit habitation for God's own crowning feature of creation, which is mankind? Why aren't the earth is spinning? Why aren't we spun right off of it? There's a force called gravity. Man didn't create it. He discovered that God created it. It was already there. Didn't somebody say that Columbus didn't discover, discover America? It was already there. Hence, Joe said, hence the word discover. <laughs> you know, we got to realize that stuff's already out there. The rules, the laws, the statutes, they're out there. We have to go seek them out and discover them. And that's what part of our purpose is in life. We're rational, and God wants to increase our rationality and our understanding. So how is it that this rock is hurling through space, and at the same time it's fit habitation for the crowning feature of God's creation, which is us. How is it that the stupendous event of a geological globe spinning on its axis and revolving around another fiery globe can be so powerful and at the same time so glorious and so beautiful? A wise philosopher once said, truth is like the sun. You can shut it out for a time, but it ain't going away, Elvis Presley said. Great philosopher. How is creation at once so beautiful and so powerful? The sun rising and setting. 
the firmament lightning and darkening, the stars shining and shooting all around us. You ever see a shooting star? If you haven't, you haven't looked up at the sky at night for, for a minute because it doesn't take long to see a shooting star. You'll see several in just a few minutes. It's amazing how much activity is going on out there. And here's the other thing, the vastness of it. You know it has been calculated? I'm just throwing this out there. It has been calculated that when you go out and you look at the firmament at night, when it's dark, and the ground light is very low, and you see the mass of the constellations up there, do you know they may not all still be there? Do you know that they're so far away that those stars emitting light to your eye, and, and light travels at what? Uh, 186,000 miles per second. I knew some would know. 186,000 miles per second. Think how fast that is. I mean, that's almost as fast as Muhammad Ali. Remember what he said? He said, well, I'm so fast, I turn out the light and get under the covers before the room gets dark. But think of that. It's coming so fast through the universe. And it's so far away that that star might not be there anymore, and you're just now seeing the light of it. In fact, it's so far away, that star may have been gone before the creation of the world. That's how far away and vast a creation we're talking about. How can you talk accident in the same breath? No, creation is powerful and beautiful at the same time. And how is it, friends? Simple things. How is it that the stand of white birch at the edge of my property lean into the yard to find sunny rays that feed them? You know, the sun is food to plants. You know that, right? And how is it at dusk when the setting sun stretches across the green grass to pick out the points on the elegant white trunks of the birch grove and illuminates them in this glorious climax for just a few minutes before they're shielded in darkness for the evening? It's beautiful. Why does it make me happy to look at it? My whole family knows I go out and I look at the birches in the evening. Because I was preaching this, I went out last night and I took pictures. So here they are. Come on, everybody come up. I'm going to show you. But um, how is it that these simple beauties make us feel that all is well in the world? How is it that with all the troubles that rage around our world, political unrest, fiery confrontations in the streets, armed insurrections, corruption in government, that creation goes from sunrise to sunset unhindered by the forces raging all around them? I always think of Bethlehem when I think, when I think that thought. I think... There was the Savior being born in a little dusty, insignificant town in Palestine while the Roman Empire was winning the world and fighting battles and taking census, right? And there was Jesus and his pregnant mother and, his, and her husband, Joseph, and there they are in the manger giving birth and all of the activity of civilization swirling all around Palestine at the time, all the political intrigue that was going on. And here, in creation, the Savior was being born in God's time. It is that the world was founded in wisdom and is guarded by its custodian. God is in charge, friends, and that's why it gives us peace. And that's why it gives us happiness. Throughout all of history, man has made a mess of creation the glory of God goes from dawn to dusk without being disturbed by the rising and the fading glory of man. Egypt 
rose and fell. Read your scriptures. It's only a few chapters. Egypt's there, and then it's not. And then it's still there, but it's just not powerful anymore. In fact, it's not even a bad place to be. Jesus went there for refuge, remember? It's not a great power anymore. It fell, rose and fell before the eyes of history. Assyria captured Israel of old, and Babylon captured Assyria and Israel and Judah with it. And the scriptures tell us that the wonders of each civilization and the works and achievements of the great men came and went. Babylon was a glorious civilization, but only for a short time. They were consumed by the Medo-Persian Empire that was broken up by Alexander the Great, Alexander the Greek. It simmered for a while in its own fading glory until it too burned out and Rome swallowed it up for a thousand years. Byzantium for another thousand until her enemies became too great for her. And what's left of the glory of man but his ruins? And what we know of ancient glories we know by digging in the sands of time that have buried the glory of man in the depths of obscurity. But the sun rises and the sun sets, never responding to all of this turmoil. And the glory of God goes on undisturbed by the little temporal campaigns of flawed and sinful men. And so Solomon points us to creation for assurance that God's presence in the universe is real. He assures us of God's maintenance over his creation. God didn't make the earth and just set it on its own and sit back. He's still orchestrating the events of the world. Assures us of God's maintenance of his creation and that the laws of nature are greater than our laws and they have lessons to teach that our laws can't reveal. I would speak of it in my own words if they've not already been spoken by my superior in wisdom. And so we read the words of Solomon which say, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. So there it is. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. And all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And then he writes, I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so there is with wisdom happiness, and then there is a sorrow with wisdom. And that sorrow is the emptiness of the revelation of how inconsequential the efforts of men really are in the eternal scheme of things. And that's what Solomon's saying. The world's full of labor, but I just can't get ahead. Because it's not about me after all. 
It's about God's purpose in creation. But that sorrow, so he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, he says, but that sorrow ends with the end of man's striving, with the end of his grasping for things that only God can grasp, that only he can control. And happiness begins by submitting to the eternal truths of nature and of nature's God. Those same truths, that same knowledge that brought all reality into existence. Truly the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. And so the psalmists agree. So David writes, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. So he speaks again of natural and moral laws. Praise the Lord from the heavens, he writes. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you stars of light. Praise him you heaven of heavens. And you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you, O Lord, for a glorious creation and for the purpose you've given the people of God in this world, O Lord. O Father, we are filled to the full and delighted to know that the secrets of eternity are in our hearts. They are written in your word. They are revealed in scripture. And we proclaim them with delight and to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.